Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Lease with another exciting episode of Surf and Sales. Um, Got to go through our sponsors real quick and then I'll introduce our guests. But we definitely want to thank our October sponsors of Lead 411, um, Gong, obviously if you don't know them, Perception Predict. And our newest one is Find Them, which is this really cool uh, ability to find the passive job seekers. So they've got an algorithm that works and, and can really help you find those folks. So please sure to check them out. Without any further ado, Welcome to the show. One name, one name only, Keenan. Keenan, thanks for joining us, man. We appreciate it. What's up, dog? So, um, so Keenan, you know, I think a lot of people know your story of being a sales leader and stuff. And I think some people know you, you, you tell me, did you start out of college as, as a model? Cause I know you did some modeling. Like where did, where did that come into your to your background and you're still just as handsome which we all know yeah i wish i was looking at myself the other day i'm like man i'm getting ugly this i don't know what to do with myself <laughs> I got, i'm like holy fuck i remember when i was a really good looking guy um uh like everything else like i'm an opportunist shit just happened by accident when i was when i was i was an ugly duckling too in high school i didn't i didn't you know had bad skin for a while and, and just was an ugly duckling and so but I, so i came into my world late and then, so as I got into college, more and more people started noticing, particularly chicks. And then, I don't know, somewhere in Boston, some random dude came up to me and was like, hey man, you ever considered modeling? And I was like, no, and blew him off. But he's, he's planted a seed. And then as I went through my life, I kept meeting people who were models. And so finally one day I said, fuck it, I'll go down to an agency. I went down with my girlfriend and the agency, yeah, we'll sign you. And so wow. they signed me and it was in Denver. So it's not like New York City, you know? I mean, modeling, a lot of people understand modeling is very similar to baseball in that there are leagues, if you will. Not everybody goes the path, but you can start in like a small city or small market, like Kansas City or Denver. Then you go to a mid-sized market like Chicago. Well, Chicago's on the cusp, like a mid-sized market. And then you go to markets like um, LA and Chicago, that would be like your uh, AAA, right? And then Miami would sort of be like a high AAA. And then you have New York, which is the majors. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. so... I just got in with Denver, did all kinds of cool stuff. Tommy Hilfiger, a lot of the local, um, what like Median F and JC Penny and what were they called back then? The Dillards and there was another one back, Joslin's way back in the day. Yeah. yeah. And so I just a lot of shit like that and just had fun doing it. And then I went down to Miami to try to, you know, get into the, get to the next level. And um, right when I was down there trying to do that, that's when someone called me and said, dude, stop, just come home and start a real job and get a real life. <laughs> <laughs> What, what, what was the moment, and I'm asking from a career pers perspective, right, career transition, what was that moment where you, I don't know if you would call it giving up on your dream, but you just kind of realized it's time for a change? Yeah, I think too, one, it wasn't a dream. One, it wasn't a dream. Like, it was more of a, a lifestyle. Like, I could make money, there were hot chicks, cool people, um, and it wasn't very hard. You know, I didn't actually the modeling itself. I didn't like the job itself. I didn't like, um, I loved runway. Runway is a blast. You met lots of people, you're moving around, you're changing, you're doing it as like acting. The actual shoots sucked. So, I mean, I can tell you there were times it was fucking freezing. I did sunglass hut campaign once and it was freezing. You're standing around waiting for your turn. You'd, sometimes you're changing out in the snow. You're changing, like it just, the actual shooting standing in front of the camera was not, the job itself was not fun. Everything around it was glamorous and fun, but the shooting itself wasn't. Going to locations was fun. But so anyways, so I was like, um, fuck this. And, and then a buddy called me when I was in South Beach. He's like, look, you need to come home and get you to start a job. 
And I was like, well, I don't know. He's like, and this was in 97 or 96. He said, you look, you can make 55, $60,000 a year. And back then I was 26, maybe 27. And I was like a thousand bucks a week, like a thousand dollars a week. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of beer. <laughs> and, and I was like, and I was like, and then I started doing the math. I was like, well, if I want to make three or $400,000 a year, that's probably what a, a male model at that time could make. Now look, male models aren't like female models. It's the one place women do better than men. And like at that time was a guy named Tyson Beckford and another dude named Michael Anderson, uh, who's actually a good friend of mine still. We hung out in California. Um, and I knew, I just knew that I wasn't going to get to that level. I just knew I was never going to be a super, supermodel. So I was like, even if I get to a high level, I'm only going to make two, 300, 400,000 a year, but only for a couple of years. And I was like, I could go get a real job, make that kind of money and then make it the rest of my life. So that's how I calculated. And I was like, okay, I'm out. I, so no hard was, it, was it a, was it a sales job to start? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody knew I was going to be, everybody except me knew I was going to be in sales. <laughs> That's interesting to me that that at that age you were thinking about a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and able to recognize, yeah, but only for a little a little bit, and then I'm not going to earn that kind. I, there's no way that when I was 27 years old I was thinking about a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and thinking like, hmm, I'm going to need more than that or I'm going to want to do more than that. I, I can remember being in college and thinking. If I can make 50 grand a year, that'd be amazing. That's all I'll ever need, ever. So, right? Wow. Um, yeah, no, interesting. No. And I was, obviously I'm so wrong. I was so wrong about yeah. that. I didn't, I didn't have that same foresight into, uh, you know, earnings that you had. I find you know, it interesting. I, to call it, well, I don't know, don't, I think you give me more credit than I deserve. <laughs> Right. I mean, it was really simple. Like I got to come home. And so in my head, I had to come up with why would I go home? Like I'm having a good time here. So I needed, I needed something more than I just don't want to, you know what I mean? So I had, I had to process something. And so I processed, why am I here? I'm here to be a model. Okay. Well, what are you going to get for being a model? Well, if I, if I do well here, I can go to New York at the end of the season because it's in South Beach. And then if I go to New York, what does that mean? I kept saying, what does that mean? And it, it and it spun into, it means, maybe making several hundred thousand dollars. And I didn't even know for sure. That's what I just gave it. Like for all I know, it could have been more or less, but that's what I just sort of assumed. And uh, based on what I was making then and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, that's nice, but you can't model to your hundred. You know what I'm saying? So, and I, and I also knew that I wanted to get into business. I always knew that eventually I'll get into business. So that when you get into business and you, and you become CEO or senior vice president or something, you're making several hundred thousand dollars a year and you can do that forever. So it, it was just like, well, I guess that's simple. Like it, I was, I don't think I was that smart. It was just, just ask one of the questions. How, how long did it take you before you realized that you really didn't like working for other people? Woo! Now, did you know that straight away and just did it for a little while anyways? Or, or did it just kind of come on slowly? Came on slowly. And yep. then hit me like a ton of bricks. I got caught in a huge internal operational Function, functionally, functional, functional group, operational group um, battle, and we lost. And I didn't even go looking for the battle. It was just, that's what I, I, like, I was naive. My career went so fast. I went from modeling in South Beach, Miami, to running a $300 million line of business within three years. And, and then the, this was the fourth year. So I, I didn't know any of this shit. All I know is you do your job, you get paid, you go home. 
And I just got caught in this big, huge battle. Didn't see it coming, but once I was in it, I was like, well, I'm in it now. I better fight, like pick up a sword. And uh, we lost, we lost the sales organization, lost operations. And I'll never forget. I was like, this is the biggest fucking bullshit I've ever seen in my goddamn life. So was I was like, that, I, was that the, the moment you were like, oh, I got, I got to not work for other people. I got to find a way to do something myself. That was the moment I, I knew I didn't like working for other people. I mean, yeah. I had already tried to step and failed at a job. I've always been an entrepreneur. So I failed, lost all my money, was starting over again. So I kept working for the man and just kept doing other things to try to make them work. And they all failed until this one. What were the things that failed? Because there's always a there's always a ton of learning there, right? Like, are you comfortable sharing? Well, you're comfortable sharing everything. Three failures. The first failure was I was right in 2000. I started a um, what were they called back then? A uh, a career. You know when like a you know when people got fired and then they would or, or laid off and they'd get them the career counseling thing and they right. yeah they, it was called something back then. It tells you how bad my memory is. But I started one of those. And with that, I, with that, I created this whole job search process called Get an Edge. Uh, I created an infomercial with it and it, it mirrored selling. I argued that getting a job is like selling. And so I showed them how to turn themselves into a product and, and how to reach out and do cold calling or cold outreach for the jobs and show them this is how the whole process, right? That failed. Then the next one I did was um, a, a, a social media site that came up right around the same time as Twitter. Damn, I, there was a, we had a function like Twitter in it, and it, we just didn't even see the potential. Ah, shoot myself. But it was called Create Buzz. And basically what it did is it, it, it aggregated content around categories. And then when you went to, and it put the best content based on this huge algorithm on a homepage. So on the homepage was the best content across all the categories. And then you would go into subcategories like sports or, or politics or or, or family or whatever. And then you'd see the best content there. And then within, let's say sports, you'd see the best content for football or whatever. So you could stay in your niche and work yourself all the way to the homepage as a way for people to find really good ton content and people be able to compete. That did really well for a while, but then it failed. And then I did a, one I loved that we got killed. It, it would have worked. We created a way for ski instructors at giant ski organizations to create their own profiles to attract and engage with potential people to teach them how to ski and to log their ski, ex ski school experience. So when they came back, they could pick up where they left off or they could see videos from where their ski experience, et cetera. Everybody loved it. All the ski um, resorts loved it until they realized that they pay their ski instructors hourly and based on FSLA laws, if they went home and, and communicated with someone or put, did a lot of work and they'd have to pay them. Hey. No one wanted that financial risk. So it's they all, almost like you need to find the independent ski instructor. There aren't enough of them, not even worth my time. That, that without, I got it. Is there a theme of, of why these things failed? Like, as you go back and look at it, it was like, I was naive about funding or money. I, I missed this. Like you even said, like in the organization, I just missed this, how this politics shit works out. Right. Um, okay. Any sort of common theme in there that you can think of? That There is a common theme, but I'm afraid to, to say it because I don't want it to be a distraction to people. So for me, the common theme was the less I knew about the space I was in, the worse I did. So the ski one would have worked like that one from a product perspective, everybody loved it, right? But I didn't understand, well, I didn't think, I understood it one minute you explained it, but I didn't think about that piece when I built it. So that was a big miss. 
but the product itself would have worked if it weren't for that piece. But the other one, the, the one about jobs, I didn't understand that space. I didn't understand how companies decided to send their people to. I grossly underestimated the average person spending their own money when they're out of a job. That was the shit show. I was young, I was stupid. But that's, but isn't, isn't that the gift of entrepreneurial, you know, you're so naive, you just build it. And then eventually you, you strike gold, right? Well, like, yeah. But then yeah. you go into the next thing, yeah. right? So were you, as soon as you became in sales, were you a student of sales or were you sort of, no, I got this, you know, don't teach me stuff. Or did you, where did your sales acumen come? I've never been, and maybe it's why I'm so indignant and sort of an asshole to people who think they know it all. And There's someone, the title of our episode right there. Why I'm indignant and an asshole to people by Keenan. Yeah. So. Yeah. Because I, I, there's nothing I can't stand more than the person who says I've been doing this for fucking 25 years. Right? I've been doing this for the minute I hear that come out of their mouth. I either shut down or if I'm forced to engage with them, I call them on it until they own it or until they get pissed and leave me because I fucking hate it. I've always been somebody who's been like, I can get better. Like I can be the best. I can get better. I can be better. What don't I know? How could I not lose this deal again? How could I ski these moguls faster? Like I'll go out, you take a hundred, no, take a thousand random people that ski and I'll probably ski better than if it's a thousand random, probably all of them but maybe, maybe 998, right? But I don't care about those people. I care about all the people on the hill that I know personally that kick my ass, that I'm like, I gotta get better than that. I gotta ski better. I gotta do more of this. So I've been like that my whole life. You, you are Scott, like you guys seriously are exactly the same. Scott's not as vocal about it. He's not as vocal, but he is 100% wired just like you. And I think it's cause you guys are, you're both, whether you want to call it or not, you're both professional athletes. You can't stand to lose. Like, I, can't yeah. say, I can't say to suck. I learned to lose a while back. When I was a kid, I couldn't stand to lose. I was that kid that would throw shit and get mad. And that became tiresome. Like, so now I'm okay. I, I don't like losing, but I've learned to lose. I don't like there's knowing a, that I could be better and not getting better. There's a, uh, a long string of broken tennis rackets in my past, Richard. <laughs> yes. You know, from when I played tennis all the time and, and all this kind of stuff. I, I can't remember who, but years ago, um, I think I was in Atlanta and uh, at the sales law conference or something like that. And somebody said to me, you know, you should meet Keenan because you two guys are very similar and super outspoken and kind of anti-establishment. Don't give a shit. And so I'm chuckling now. This is the first time we've actually met for anybody who doesn't know that. And I'm listening to you talk about how you hate all this, you know, people who think that they know everything. And I've been doing this for 25 years and, um, my very first sales VP used to talk about how he had gone through like Sandler and Miller Hyman and he'd like done all these like academia type sales things. And he was very fond of like letting me know that I had never done any of that. And, uh, I can remember getting in trouble cause I basically told him, yeah, but I have street smarts, dude. And you don't have, you don't have that, you know, and I can always read a book and you can't learn what I, what I know. So I'm getting, I'm getting a kick out of, uh, there's a text Keenan on my phone from Scott. I actually, I'm going to make a t-shirt for him. I haven't given it to him, but he knows that, that he, he was frustrated by something last week and he just texted me and said, I hate people. <laughs> he just hates people. <laughs> so, so, so Keenan, when did you realize what was the final moment or the final straw where you're like, screw this, I'm going to go do my own thing and come up with a sales guy. Right, like that. That's the irony. That's the whole irony in it. I didn't. 
I didn't, there was no aha moment. So what happened, what happened was um, I kept, my career went so, so fast. Like everything in my life is, so, I'm, I'm naive. As smart as I like to think I am, most of the shit happened, I was too dumb to know what was going on. I was like, ooh, quick, that's a bus. Quick, jump on it. Um, I was, I was, my career went so fast that for a long time I couldn't compete on my resume. And this is before LinkedIn took off. This is before social, you know what I mean? So this is in the early to mid 2000s. And I got tired of that if I lost a job nine out of 10 times because of something not my fault, it took me forever to find a new one, like six months, a year. And sometimes it would be a bit of a slide back and I'd be pissed. I'm like, why am I going back? Just because my resume doesn't show 10, 20 years of this shit. Like I deliver, so can we get on with it? And so I, I got fed up with it. And so 2009, I started a blog. And the simple, simple objective was, fuck my resume. I am going to create a living document of everything I know about sales, how to run sales teams, how to handle sales difficulties, how to build commission plans, blah, 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 blah. And so I literally blogged for 712 days straight on- Didn't miss a day. I'm sure I did, maybe a couple, but no, not really, uh-uh. More or less, 700. Yeah, more or less, 712 oh. days, yep. And look, I got good at it. Some days I didn't have a lot of time, so I just like, I'd do a, uh, what was his name, um, Seth Godin, and I'd like do a quote, you know what I'm saying, or something. Other days it'd be 1,000 long, you know, treaty. Treaties, whatever you know what I'm trying to say. Treatis, I think that's the word. Anyways, but I, the point is I kept going and I, and I did real stuff and I taught. That was the whole point of the blog, teach. You know, how to build a, a XYZ, how to write a commission plan, how to avoid this, be careful. Like it was just teaching the whole time. And after two years, guys, um, to answer your question, Richard, people started reaching out and saying, hey, I've been reading your blog. I need help. I've been reading your blog. I need help. And it's funny, it's funny, the very first client just called me, close by 10 years ago, just called me yesterday. They work for a, what do you call those things? A venture capital firm. They got a bunch of portfolio companies and she wants to figure out how I can help all the portfolio companies. So the irony in that. But so I get, again, we get purchased by a company out of England. They lay off the entire North American sales team and I'm sitting there at home. I've got a one-year-old, um, my, I'm married, I got two little kids and I'm like, okay, I know how this looks. It's gonna take me six months to a year to find a job. So do I, and sort of like the decision in, in Miami, Scott, do I spend six months to a year seeing if I can grow this business, bet on me, or do I see if I can spend that time finding a job? And I was like, fuck it, if I'm gonna be out of this thing for six months to a year, I'm gonna just go for it. So I called up that woman, I was like, hey, you still want me to work with your team? She said, yup, I never looked back. Do you, you said something really good, just, you know, am I going to bet on me? And I think that's a big piece that holds folks back, particularly in sales, right? No, dude, in life. So how do you, can you coach someone to do that? Can you coach them without going to, you know, five years of therapy to no. bet on themselves? No, you can, you can, in, I don't say inspire, that seems a bit douchey, but you can, you can encourage, you yeah. can encourage people if I were a life coach, which I have no desire to be, but if I were a life coach, I would challenge people um, into why they're not betting on themselves. Because look, the truth of the matter is why we don't bet on ourselves. We buy into this concept of the American dream and competing with, with the Joneses and the outward appearance of things. So then what we start doing is we start making decisions to go to certain schools, to say we got certain degrees, to get certain jobs, so we can say we live in certain neighborhoods, so we can say we drive certain cars, so we can say we're dating and married to the right person. 
and you don't really like any of it. But now when it comes to starting a business or getting out and doing it on your own, you are so boxed in and the risk is so high, including your ego, that if I fail, I could lose the house. If I fail, I could lose the, um, the cars. I may not have any money or I might not be, have the big title and none of that feels good. And the truth of the matter is what they don't recognize is they've given their life over to someone else or to the world. And now it's the company that pays them. They think they're doing it, but no, it's the company that is paying you. It's the company that's dictating your life. It's the company that's deciding how much you're worth, not you. Do you, have, do you ever have these moments, um, you know, of imposter syndrome or, 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 or weakness, if you will, where you're like, oh shit, what if this all falls to pieces? Like, I don't know, maybe in like late February, early March when COVID hits or you're like, uh-oh, what if I have to go back and work for somebody else again? That's what I'm getting at. Somebody, somebody asked me that the other day, and I'm like, yeah, every day. I'm just, I'm just curious, you know, somebody who's been in this, in this game way longer than, uh, than me now, um, do you, you still feel that way every day as well? Every day. And yeah. look, maybe that's part of my drive. Like, part of yeah. me is like, like, okay, here's a good example. Like, I'll open the whole Komodo. Like, we've sold 40,000 books, and we're going to pass that this month, right? The cool thing is, it, we, had, we didn't see a big, huge spike of like, you know, 35,000 and then a few here and there. We have been selling almost the same amount of books every month for, t- every, for two years. Well, it'll be two years in December, right? That's unheard of, right? So I'm thinking, well, why the fuck am I not bigger than I'm at? I must suck because we should be way bigger than we are with way more business than we have. So I'm like, what the fuck is your problem? You're doing something wrong. You're fucking up. You're not that good. You're just getting lucky. So yeah, man, I, I do that shit to myself every single day. How do you get out of your own way? I don't know if I have. <laughs> but you well, let, me, let, me, let, me, let, me rephrase, let me rephrase the question. How long does it take you? When you have those moments where you start doubting yourself, how long does it take you to kick out of it? Is that like a 24-hour cycle, a two-week cycle, or is it literally like two minutes? Because that, um, that, that's what I think... That's one difference that I think Richard and I have potentially is like Richard might dwell on it for a little longer where like I'll have that feeling and then, you know, 10 minutes later, I've convinced myself that I'm king of the world and I'm, and I'm out of that kind of moment. I would say it's actually neither. I would say for me, it's like a current. Hmm. If I'm a stream, it's a current. And so really what I, what I just try to do is I just try to um, not let it, I just dismiss it. Right. So, um, and, and maybe what I do is I feed off of it, I guess. Right. So, um, it's a subconscious thing. I don't, when it's conscious, it goes away the next thing I have to deal with. So if, if it's usually happening when I'm, when I'm idle, right. Or if something just happened that negative, like fucking a, the fuck do I got to do to get, you know, blah, blah, blah. But then the minute I got to fix it or something else comes up, it goes away. So for me, it's more of a current that I'm battling that I'm sort of saying, I'm not going to let you get me. Like I can do this. And it's funny because it's in my whole life. If you ask me, do I think I'm smart? I'll tell you, yeah, I think I'm smart as shit. But at the same token, there's a current under that. It's like, I don't think I'm that smart. I, I'm missing all kinds of stuff. I'm not that fucking good. So there's, I know that I'm this, and I know that I'm that. But at the same token, when I try to normalize it or rational, not rational, when I normalize it, I'm like, yeah, you're not as smart as you think you are. There's a lot smarter people. Or you're not as talented as you think you are. There's a lot more talented people. So I think I just keep upping the game on myself. So I never actually 
believe I'm. But, that, but that that's where some of the drive comes from, though, right? For sure, because if you when you have that moment and you're wondering, man, what am I doing wrong or whatever, or you know, if I slow down, like everything's gonna go away. That's fuel. Yes. That's fuel for the fire to push a lot harder. Yes. You know. Yes. No. So, you know what? I think what's funny is I get these little things like. The biggest, the biggest example, there's a whole bunch of little ones I get, whether it's monthly or weekly or whatever, it doesn't matter, quarterly. But the biggest, I get these little th- affirmations where I'll be compared to something, I'll do something, and they'll be like, dude, like we talked to the smartest, you know, we talked to XYZ physicists, and they couldn't figure it out. How'd you get them? Like, I don't know, I just seem like common sense. Well, I guess I'm pretty smart. So the book is the good, best example of that. I never thought the book, I liked the book, I thought the book was good, I was proud of the book. I had no idea the book was going to get the play that it's gotten and the response that it's gotten and the acclaim it's gotten. Like if you had asked me if I could write a book that would get this much acclaim and be this well-respected in an entire industry, I would have said no. What was your original goal with it in writing it? Just to help promote the the consulting side of the business. (laughs) Just like a calling card basically. Yeah. 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 Yep. I want to shift it to maybe a little bit more current. Akeem, thanks for letting us go in these places because I don't think we go there a lot with people um, or, or they don't want to go there, <laughs> I should say. What do you see shifting? You know, it's 2020. You're looking at 2021. Half the countries work from home. Half the countries in the office. What are you seeing changing in the sales world right now? What do you see? You know, what's your magic ball say? You know, I get this question a lot and I'm not, I'm not good at it. Like I'm really not good at seeing what's coming. I'm a lot better at recognizing when the things come, which ones are going to make a difference. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Like, like I'm not, I'm not the guy that says, Oh, this piece, this piece, this piece. Oh, Oh, this is going to be huge. I'm the guy that's like, I have no fucking clue what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, I mean, this is probably the best example. I saw blogs and I'm like, oh, I know what to do with that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, so I, I, I'm not good at these. I mean, yeah, no. I, you know what you should do? Ask a question differently. Ask me what, you, tell me what you think is coming and I'll tell you if I think it's going to be. Let me ask you, what trend do you see with salespeople because they're isolated? What are you, you know, how bad is it getting for some of them? Are we, are we getting rid of the, the bad sales reps? We trimming no. the Oh, we're never going to get rid of the bad sales reps. Never. I think it's getting worse. Look, man, we've had a million reasons to get rid of bad sales reps. We don't get rid of bad sales reps. Why don't we get, why don't we get rid of bad sales reps? Because we have bad sales managers. And why don't we get rid of bad sales managers? Because we have bad sales leaders. Why do we have bad sales leaders? Because we have bad CEOs. Look, man, with, no, no, <laughs> no, no. Bad salespeople are the norm. They're the norm, dude. So we just all need to accept they're the fucking norm and nothing's going to change. And if we can get incremental growth in some of our best ones, that's fucking great. But no, no, bad salespeople are here to stay. I, I, I just like the fact that I can just throw a word out there, bad salespeople, and Keenan can go for like 20 minutes, right? You, like, think, you, think it's getting, you think it's getting worse though? Because here, let me push back a little bit. Like if we can incrementally get better, I heard you say that. But then you also said, no, I think it's getting worse. I think there's more bad salespeople than ever before. No, I, I, said, I wish we could, if we could. Like, I, believe, I believe that's a goal. Like I said, there's always going to be bad salespeople and they're going to be the majority. I believe, we, I would love to get to a place where I believe we could get incrementally better. 
But look, it's simply this. It's like everything else in the world, okay? This is my theory on, so here, everybody, pay attention. This is my gift to everybody right here, okay? Most people are good, not because they're good, but because everybody else is average or bad. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I, I, I learned that very early in my sales career. And I, I specifically looked around at the sales leaders in, in my first company and was like, what are these people doing? They, they, they do nothing. They're not helping anybody at all. And then I looked at some of the other reps and I saw how disorganized they were and had no process. And I thought, Jesus Christ, this is going to be really fucking easy to advance, to be honest yep. with you. All I got to do is figure out what works and then just keep doing that particular thing and then help other people. And I'm going to destroy everyone around me. Yep. I, I remember thinking that, having that moment. So that's why you're successful now, right? So there are truly the people who are truly, truly good. Like, though I love those people and you see them a mile away. Then there are the people who are performing well just because everybody else sucks. But the bottom line is the majority of people aren't good. And here's what's sad about it. It's, Bring us back to what the question that, that Richard asked earlier. Most people get into something by accident and they don't love it and it's a means to an end. And so if it's a means to an end, there is no desire, there's no drive to be the best at it, right? Yeah, they don't give a shit. Like I wanna do just enough so that I can make my money and people are happy and I can go about my day. And it's yeah. sad, like, and not, look, there are a whole bunch of jobs. The world re relies on those people. And I'm not bagging on these people at all. They're just an easy example. But I know, I know for a fact that 99% of the people who work at the DMV, they didn't grow up and say, I want to work at the DMV. I want to dole out licenses. I want to, that, that's not a fun job. No. Right now, anybody who's been in that job for more than three or four years and it wasn't a stepping stone to save a little bit of money or maybe to get into something else, they've basically given up on life. It's good enough. And, and I'm not saying that making them bad people. What I'm trying to point out is that is there aren't many people in this world who are who lack the mental capacity that, that that's as high as they can go is that type of job. Of course, every one of those people sitting in those seats has capabilities to deliver far more to the world, to give far more to, to their community, to make more impact in their life, in their loved ones, and actually live a greater life. But something's happened. They, oh, no, I'm fucking staying right here. That's it, right here. And that sucks. Yeah. But that's the world all over. At this, at this point in your life, in your career, are you getting more joy out of working with people who are already somewhat successful or already successful to get to like an even greater place? Or are, are you enjoying taking people who are just getting started and kind of trying to, you know, give them the tools required to kickstart their career and kind of get on their, their own journey. Neither. My favorite people are the people who want to maximize their net gain. So I don't care if that's the, that's the kid who's coming out of a poor neighborhood in Southside Chicago and, and wants to be a, a, a director of sales in five years, right? Or if that's the person who's a CEO of a, of a, of a SaaS that's at 15 million and they want to get to 100 million. I don't care which one of those it is. Right. I just want those who are most committed and driven to the net gain. Those who realize this is where I am and this is what I could achieve. And this is how much more I could do. And those people who are committed to doing that much more are the people that I get most excited to work with. 
is it be, is it because it's so frustrating to deal with the other types who aren't that passionate and aren't that motivated or is it because it's just that much more difficult to deliver results working with those type of folks again neither it's the excitement and energy i get from the positivity that comes from someone who so sees the opportunities in life and they want to go for them like that is that is my energy man like my favorite tv show is well i don't do it anymore but my favorite tv show was the biggest loser and i'm not gonna lie i would cry at the end of those you ever see the the ending of those you ever seen the biggest loser i know of it i never watched it richard did you Scott, Scott doesn't watch TV. He's one of those people. So, dude, like, I would Unless watch sports. Them. Unless it's sports. I watch sports. That's it. But, yeah. yeah, so I would watch these, right? And, and literally, you'd see a man or a woman who weighed 1,000 pounds, Scott, or weighed 800 pounds, weighed 600 pounds, and they got lucky enough to make this show, and they got lucky enough to be put with these people, but they would work their ass off for six, seven, eight, nine months and lose 800, 900 pounds and come back at 125, 150 but this is why I would cry, but it also was out of joy. I'm not kidding. You call me a pussy, call me a pussy. I would literally sit there tearing. You watch people at the beginning of the show who you could tell were so obese, they were lonely. That if they were married, they were the lucky ones. But the single ones, you could tell nobody wanted to go out with them. They would sit at home living with their mother or father. They weren't getting out of the house. In some cases, they couldn't even walk 10 feet. People would look at them and laugh. People would make fun of them. And by the end of the show, some of these people were actually attractive. You know what I mean? And you could see they like, they were going on dates. They were, they were, people were interested in them. People wanted to be around them and to see in their eyes that, that, that freeing, that, that, that life, the opportunity that they got for losing that weight and what that did to their life and what they could get out of life moving forward is so inspirational to me and so energizing to me that look, man, we get one fucking trip on this earth. One. And the idea of people fucking it up because they're not willing to try yeah. and getting to the end and be like, what happened is devastating to me. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, I think that I probably walked through the first 23 years of my life motivated, but not really knowing why and having no plan whatsoever. And then... I got sick, spent four years in the hospital, and the whole perspective changed. Going about my, my days, my business, having an appreciation and perspective for the lack of opportunities that we have, making the most out of each one, not wanting to be around people who are not motivated or, or satisfied or complacent or whatever, um, and just trying to make the kind of impact that you're talking about. You're talking about tearing up when you see these people making these like massive life changes. Um, that that's extremely rewarding. And on, on a minute scale, a minute scale, what I've loved about being a sales leader is I could take somebody who, you know, it comes from nothing who came out of jail or was an alcoholic or a drug addict or still fucking was, and I'm trying to help them out of it while I'm trying to teach them how to sell and you watch their life evolve and change, and now they're in a different place. It's like, that, that's what means something, you know? Yes, 100%. My favorite compliments when people send me stuff on, on LinkedIn or whatever, is like, hey, Keenan, I read your book, and I just went from being bottom of the, you know, bottom of the pack 
to I was a top rep and I'm going to wherever, right? Like those are my fit. Forget, oh, the book is awesome. You're the man. I don't, my favorite is when someone tells me their life has been changed. I'm like, woohoo! That's my favorite part. Richard, you're on mute. Don't worry, Keenan. This happens once or twice an episode. Richard talks to me. I remember reading Keenan's first book. And um, what was it? It's the one with the pencil breaking. What was it called? Not taught. Yeah, not taught. It's all these things that are not taught. And Scott, if you haven't read it, you would love it. But it also chronicled how he built this business. And it so mirrored mine. It's where I really sort of got connected with him. But I was constantly tweeting at Keenan. I would just tweet this quote constantly because I was like, this is so good. This is so good. So he... Both of you have that ability to, no, 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 don't do what everybody else is telling you to do. Do it this way. Like this, this, and this, and it, every time it's, I've heard either one of you say it, it's like, yep, that's right. So I think it's one of the reasons I've, I feel connected to, to both of you. Um, I got I gotta shift again. Cause it, it's a, it's 20 fucking 20, man. Like the world is a crazy, crazy place. And, and Keen, I know you're very passionate about, social justice. And you, you know, I remember when I saw your first thing on Facebook, I'm like, dude, you got to get this on LinkedIn. That very, he had like this beautiful 30 minute diatribe that just went off. How are, how are you feeling it now? How are you seeing this world? Because I want to say that was in May or June. Well, I guess it was right after, it was right after Floyd, George Floyd. You know, how, how are you, what are you seeing? What are you experiencing? I guess might be a better question. Look, from a day-to-day perspective out in society, my life hasn't changed because of George Floyd or because of all this stuff. Where I'm experiencing it or, or, or seeing it is through social media, right? And, and, and through media in general as we watch the politicians and we watch the media talk. And, and I guess in, in some experiences, having one-on-one dialogue with friends and family. And this is what I'm seeing on both sides is we have the majority of us have aligned ourselves with a D or an R and now our entire existence is built around reaffirming that is the right decision. That is where we are today is we've aligned ourselves with a D or an R and now everything I do is to reaffirm that that is the right decision that I need to be an R and I'm an R for the right reason or I'm a D for the right reason. Now it's subconscious. People aren't saying, dude, should I really be a D? It's I'm a D and therefore everything I do reaffirms that I'm a D or I'm an R. And what's fucked up about that is politicians and society in general, because I don't believe there's a puppet master. I just don't believe there's a puppet master. But those who have agendas and they're trying to get places are using that and playing that against us. And it's driving me insane. Do you see hope? Do you see it getting better? Or do you think it's gonna get worse before it gets better? Um, I don't know. I don't know. So I think, I, think it's, I think the best hope we have is it doesn't get worse. Um, but I, 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 yeah, no, I, I think it's only going to get worse. And until there's a massive event that puts us all in the same bucket with some serious casualties, no, I don't think it's changing. Because what's sorry? No, go ahead. I was just going to say it's, it's you know, one would have thought Sandy Hook might have been one of those moments, you know? When no, it's, it's, no, because 
with all due respect, think about what I said. Our whole existence is to reaffirm I'm a D or an R. Sandy Hook didn't only affected 15, 20, what is it, 20 kids and their families. I don't want to say only, but 335 million to, you know, 980 or whatever, whatever the number is, aren't affected. And so they will sit and argue why they needed the gun or they'll sit and argue why every single gun in the entire world needs to be confiscated and thrown away. Like, no, no, the only thing that's going to do it, you know what would have done it is if this, and I'm not advocating that. Anybody listen, don't say Keenan wants us all to die. But coronavirus could have done it if the, um, if the, um, the, the mortality rate was actually what we thought it was going to be. If it had been four, five, six percent, and we're at a million or two million dead people, and look, I'm not advocating this, but all the asshats who run around and say not wearing masks out of dropping like flies, then we could be like, the, all of us are like, whoa, wait a minute, right? But in, unfortunately, the, the coronavirus made it worse because the predictions weren't as bad and people aren't dying, as, the mortality rate isn't as high. And so all the seed of doubt can be thrown in there. And I just saw some guy go the other day, go on some rant about wearing a mask. It's, so no, I got to reaffirm that I'm a Republican. I got to reaffirm I'm a Democrat. And that's all I That's my whole life. So I know you, you know, I know you on, on Facebook. Um, Scott quit Facebook. He, he boycotted oh, it. Man. So, but you, you know, you engage more than most people I know with the R's and the D's. You really do. And you really try to go rational, right? Like you try to say, help me explain this. Like, help me understand. Like you, you're always saying, you know, I don't see it that way, but maybe there's something I'm missing. And I don't think enough people are willing to at least do that. Like that's part of the problem to your point of like, they're always looking to just reaffirm that my group of people is my group of people. So how do you, so here's my question. Cause I know you have three daughters. How do you try to educate or model that learning capability within the kids? Because I think it's super important. I think right now, because a lot of us are parents, a lot of us are parents, we got kids schooling from home. And so we're around them a lot more. We have more ability to influence them. And we've got all this other shit going on, you know, whether it's COVID or social justice or the election, whatever it is, just as a dad, like how do you try to be a good dad with, with your daughters? I swear at them all the time. Well, yeah, that's no different than what you did last year. I want to know what you're doing different this year. So. Um, you know, I am unbelievably proud, and bear with me here. I hope I haven't been too um, self-absorbed in this conversation today, and I hope I don't, haven't appeared um, self-grandizing, but I am going to be here. Uh, my three daughters are the most amazing young women that I think I could have ever have met. Um, they are just phenomenal. And yes, I'm biased and yes, I know. But these girls, they're athletic. They're all going to a full-time ski school now, competing in, in skiing, two in mogul skiing and one in pipe, park and pipe. They're literally out there as women. I know women do this, but it's not the norm for women. Learning how to do um, back flips on snow, front flips on snow, um, cork tens, misties, and they're all doing this on the trampoline about to take this to snow and have to run the risk of, you know, hurting themselves, but they're just going for it like banshees. They're all A students. Um, they have an amazing set of friends. Um, you know, I have a 15 year old and, and out of respect for her, let me just say this, the things that scare men about 15 year, 15 year old girls hasn't even entered our vernacular yet. Like, 
it is so far away. Now it could change overnight, but it's, it's so, it's, it's so, I don't have to deal with inappropriate clothing. I don't have to deal, like my daughters are the most amazing, smart, intelligent, grounded young ladies in the world. I give them credit for being them because they make the choices, right? That's the first thing I recognize with kids. I can't make kids do shit. I can yell and scream at them and force them to do things. But at the end of the day, they have to make the choices they make. So what I've done with my whole life is said, you figure it out. I have not protected my daughters. I have not coddled my daughters. I have not treated my daughters like little princesses. I was like, go fucking make your own dinner. Yeah, I'm, I, I got shit to do. Make your own dinner. It's not my problem. I, they, can we go to Starbucks? Dad? Yeah, you got any money? No, well then, then we're not going to Starbucks, right? Um, and, you know, they come home and I did a video on this. One of my daughters didn't make the orange team, which is the best soccer team. And then I looked, around, looked right in the eye and I said, how much did you practice last week? None. How much did you practice outside of formalized practice? How much practice? None. How much time do you spend by yourself dribbling the ball? None. So I looked right in the eye and said, then why the fuck do you think you should be in orange? Now, a lot of parents looking on the out, I'd be a great reality TV show. Well, how dare you swear at your kid like that? How dare you yell at your kid like, ha, da? And I'm like, fuck you. Your kid's a loser. My kid's going to learn this lesson. My kid's going to learn that they didn't practice. So why in God's name do they feel entitled to make an orange? Right? And so I, I hug my kids more than any other kid in the world. I'm constantly hugging them. At least five or six times a day, I'm hugging and kissing my kids. I'm telling my kids I like them. So not just I love you, honey, but I like you. Like, I like you. I create time to spend one-on-one -on -one time with them alone. So we have one-on-one -on -one daddy time. We do stuff one-on-one. -on -one. And, I, and I just don't skirt around issues. Like, here's another example, and then I'll shut up. But I'm just so proud of these girls. My oldest, um, she has this, I don't know where it comes from. I'm not going to get too deep. I, I, I want to respect her. But she has this coldness around hugs and kisses and, and physical, whatchamacallit. And I, I respect that. So I ask her, can I give you a hug or whatever? And it's not on the spectrum. I, it just to help clarify for some people. And um, um, I asked her the other day, because I've been having have a few health issues. I'm perfectly fine, but she got nervous. And I had a couple of health things. And I go, babe, I'm fine. I'm fine. I said, but I was thinking about this the other day, babe. Knowing how sometimes you can push daddy off when it comes to physical attention or physical interaction, I said, how would you feel if something was wrong and I died next week? Would you regret not hugging me as much? Would you regret not kissing me as much? And she kind of looked at me with that dog. And she's, she's sort of a fighter. She likes to argue for the sake of argument. So I'm like, here comes the argument. <laughs> and she goes, yeah, I would. And I was like, whoa, I think I just got to her. And I said, so honey, look, you get to decide how much you hug and kiss me. You get to decide how much affection you show me and your sisters and your mom and then your boyfriend or girlfriend when you get older, whatever, all of that, right? You get to decide that. But you need to be clear about why you're doing it and what you get from it. And if I die tomorrow and you'd regret it, that tells you that you're making the wrong choice now. And yesterday when I dropped them off to go with their mom, she gave me the biggest tightest hug and I was like wow I said baby this is the best hug I've gotten you from ages she goes I know so that's how I raise my kids I just nothing's under the covers they're not too young for anything I'm not afraid to hurt their feelings I'm not afraid to challenge them and I get I let them be them I'm gonna walk away from here with parenting advice I'm exactly. all I'm here for it I'm here for it because lord knows I fucking need it let me yeah. tell you so <laughs> Oh, uh, totally. Keenan, that's, I, I, that's, a, that's my passion. Yeah. 
I got it. I, I, I mean, again, I, I'm on social media with you, so I, I see it all the time and I know how private. But it's working. Yeah. It's working. yeah. I used to make my kids carry their skis when they were three years old and the other parents would get mad at me. I'm like, fuck you. You take, where do you think this is going to go? I literally see 13 year old kids, their parents are carrying their skis. I'm like, where do you think this is going to end up? Right. <laughs> I've already got that problem. I got that yeah, one. Yeah, my kids were carrying their skis at two and three years old and now they don't even ask me. Like, it's not even a thought carry my skis. What are you, high? Get your own fucking skis. Well, I'm going to be late. Then you should have got up earlier. <laughs> oh, man, this is awesome. Hey, Keenan, we, we got to wrap this up, but dude, this has been fantastic. We covered a ton of stuff. I, I hope this was not the same old stuff you always get on these things. Never. This was a good one. I hope this is what you wanted as well. It's exactly what we wanted. Like every, we, ne we have no agenda going in and it, and you know, it always goes the way we like it. Um, even the boring ones. And there've been a few of those where we're like, all right, you know, so, so thank you so much. And, and also I got to do, you know, the standard shout out to, to find them, uh, gong to, uh, perception predict as well as, as well as, uh, lead 411 for sponsoring. Keenan, we ask, we always ask one last question. How can we help you? How can we help Keenan? I'm never good at that. Um, all right. I'm going to fuck you up with this answer. I'm ready. Nine out of 10 times, I'm going to make it a lesson for everybody. Not, now, granted, I know it's the role of your show and it's what you do and you're, you know, you're, just, you're just checking off a box, which is fine. But the answer is this. When you really care about people and you really are invested in people or a business or other folks, you never have to ask that question. You already know. You already know. So I know the things I can do for you without getting too close to what specifically what's going on too deep in your world. I know the ways I can help you, Richard, is promote the show, promote other shows, follow you and share your stuff online, right? Talk about your training. I know how I can help you. Now, whether I'm doing it or not, that's a whole different story, right? But I know how I can help you. If I stop and take a second and I look into my relationship with somebody and I know who they are and I know it's important to them, then I know. And so the answer to me is, you know, Richard, because you know me well enough, but to everybody else listening, Think about yourself, never ask somebody that you care about or you want to help. If you want to help them, nine out of 10 times, you already know what they need. And just so do just go do it. Just do it. Just fucking do it. Don't ask, just go do it. And if it's not the right thing, they'll tell you, but regardless, they'll know you're trying to help and that opens the dialogue. That's a good answer. I like it. Really good answer. So yeah. awesome. Keenan, thank you so much, man. It's really good to catch up with you and we really appreciate it. Yeah, this was a blast. This was one of my favorite. And Scott, I don't know why it's taking us so long to meet. So fucking rock well, we on. Check that one off the box. Right. This, is what, this is what we'll do. Snow and sails. Yes. And we'll come to Denver. I yes. love bail, baby. Come. Bail. There we go. I'm in my cabin right now. <laughs> It'll be a fire, play, a fire going on there next time. It'll be cold. Right. The snow will be coming down. It'll be dope. <laughs> nice. Nice. Awesome, man. Good to see you. Thank you, guys. You too.